You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Sleuth hounds, do we have a favor that we are doing you? If you are looking for a new podcast, which... Let's be honest, we know you are because you've already binged every episode of Coffee and Cases. We wanted to suggest an amazing option for you. True Crime Creepers. Here's a little bit about them. Hey, peeps and creeps. Let me introduce you to a new true crime podcast, True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real life creeps from con artists to serial killers. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. No, really. She's heard none of them. Hey! Ugh. I guess that's true. Each week, Kristen tells me a new case with excellent victim-centered storytelling. We laugh, we cry, we get scrunch face, but we always stay respectful of the victims and their story. While ruthlessly dragging criminals. Flaming them. (laughs) We've covered everything, from con artist Anna Delvey, a personal favorite of mine, to unsolved crimes like the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. With a five-star rating on iTunes, go check us out, because we're probably that true crime podcast you've been looking for. You can find True Crime Creepers wherever you get your podcast. New episodes every Thursday. Bye, peeps and creeps. Kristen and Mogab are not only fantastic storytellers, but great people. And you need to support good people. So check out True Crime Creepers today. You'll thank us. I remember the very first time I saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I vividly remember the scene where she stands by the well and tells all of her little animal friends that she's standing by wishing well. She seems, make a wish into the well. That's all you have to do. And if you hear it echoing, your wish will soon come true. What if life was that simple and all your wishes could come true if a well echoed your dreams back to you? Many of us would wish for true love, money, a better car, a chance to make a difference. But what if instead of the well holding your hopes and dreams, it holds your nightmares? You might find answers at the bottom of the well, but they may not be the ones that you want echoed back to you. On one hand, finding what's in the well could give you peace of mind, or it could leave you empty and still searching. Do you take the risk? If your loved one was missing, Would you still sing into the well and wish to find them? Even if your loved one may be at the bottom, this is the story of Pamela Dunn.
Welcome to Coffee in Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, and to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Okay, Allison. Um, so today's case is much different than cases we normally cover. Um, there will be no theory discussion today, which I know is your favorite part. It's my fave. I know, but we pretty much can like guess who's responsible for the fate of our victim today. And there really oh. isn't like a lot of evidence to like guide us on any theory discussions so is it kind of like the uh sabrina kane case where we're pretty sure yeah like we're pretty sure we know who it is um and there's not really been any other names discussed okay so the main reason we are covering the case today is because the body of pamela or pam is still missing and like I said, the person who most believe is responsible for her disappearance, and we assume death, is sitting behind bars. Um, he's actually there in relation to her case, but not as a murderer. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that this case is like over 20 years old, we still have no idea where Pam might be. And so far, no one has provided any answers for her family and friends. Oh, 20 years is a long time to wait. It is. And even though we think we know the person responsible is behind bars, we we do not have her body. And he hasn't pled guilty to murder. And it is my hope that someone listening can provide law enforcement with the right tip to bring Pam home and put her killer to trial. So, because, basically, because we don't have her body, there's no proof that she was actually murdered. And so, hence, you can't try somebody for murder. Right. And um, that was one of my big questions. Um, this case was actually listener-suggested by one of our listeners named Amanda. And she's um, personally kind of involved in this case. Um, she knows the family of our victim And that was one of the questions that I had to her. And that's basically what she said. Like, we have no body. We have no crime scene. So we can't really put someone on trial for murder because we don't have everything we need to have. Right. That makes sense. So I'm going back today in Pam's case. So this is kind of more about... um, like the events that led up to her disappearance instead mm-hmm. of just like solely the disappearance and then possible people who could have kidnapped her. So we're okay. going like back. Okay. Way back. So, yes. Back to 1963 when Pamela Dunn was born on October 4th and my birthday is October 5th. Mm-hmm. 
contrary to what my doctor said today and asked if I was born in 1950. No, I was not. <laughs> there was a little medical uh, data snafu in Maggie's life today. Yeah. <laughs> the nurse was like, are you the Maggie that's supposed to be here? I was like, um, yeah. And she said, well, this says you were born in 1950. I was like, um, no, ma'am, I was not. <laughs> no, ma'am. That is not me. Maggie looks really good for her age. I look really great for 70 years old. (laughs) So growing up, Pam, and I actually found that her nickname was Curly when she was younger and her close friends and family called her that. I thought that was cute too. Yeah. Um, She just seemed like, you know, your everyday average girl. She had sandy brown hair and these like piercing brown eyes. Pam was thank never you. in need. You know what, Maggie? I hate to interrupt you, but thank you for saying piercing brown eyes because nobody ever compl. I mean, there's the one song, Brown Eyed Girl. Yeah. That's about all we brown eyed people get. Yes. I like Anthony has like beautiful green eyes, and uh, my eyes, I guess, are technically hazel. They've recently started being more green, but for the majority of my life, they were brown. And like brown eyed is so boring. Everybody has brown eyes. Nobody's like, ooh, your brown eyes are so pretty. I know. So thanks for saying that. Thanks for giving a shout out. Brown-eyed people. Go go brown-eyed people. (laughs) Um, Pam, though, was never in need of a date. And it seemed to me that she always kind of had, like, men kind of following her. And they were just attracted to her beauty. Um, In fact, a show called Stalkers that featured Pam's case, um, In this, her sister said that both she and Pam had a bit of a wild streak. They loved sneaking into bars when they were underage, underage, when they were (laughs) underage to check out all the gorgeous men that were inside. Wow. So they appreciated beauty and the men they were looking at. They did. Um, (laughs) P.S. Bluefound. If you hear random pops throughout tonight's episode, my house is not under attack. It is near the 4th of July here in America, and it's our Independence Day, yeah. so the people in my neighborhood are celebrating early and shooting off fireworks. My 60-pound dog's currently trying to force herself underneath my bed. Like, that's the state we're in today. Yes. Pam ends up marrying rather young by today's standards, and she marries at 17, um, but this actually was much more common a few decades ago. My mom, who is only three years older than Pam, actually married my dad at 17. And Pam was, so by that day standard, Pam wasn't super young getting married. Pam and her husband had a beautiful baby girl whom they named Stacy, um, which I just feel like is a totally like, just the essence of that time period, the name Stacy. That's like what I picture. Yeah. And Pam was like, dedicated to Stacy. She was like her world revolved around her daughter. Sadly, however, Pam's marriage does not last and soon her and her husband divorce. Okay. One thing that I absolutely love about Pam as I was reading about her was what a hard worker she was. And like, I think we take that kind of for granted. Like we'll say, oh, she's such a hard worker. Like in school, if they're like mm-hmm. an all A that like are you really do you have to work for that because sometimes like the kid has to work a lot harder than the kids that get like a's Mm -hmm. yeah i've had some c students who are harder workers than a students Mm -hmm. 
Um, but Pam really was the essence of a hard worker. It seemed in all aspects of her life, Pam was unfaltering in her ability to give and strive for improvement. Um, Pam began working at a local nursing home in 1989 as a housekeeper. And Allison, like, we know that is not a fun job. Yeah. Like, I did not do that. Being a housekeeper in a nursing home, like, I just Googled, like, general job duties it would include Mm -hmm. um, a lot of heavy lifting you would clean patient rooms clean offices and lobbies clean surgical equipment if the facility was equipped to do that cleaning bathrooms and just about anything and everything else and like you guys know I don't do bodily fluids so oh I I don't do not clean up like bathroom yeah I don't do cleaning (laughs) in general you can ask Rodney All that's like my one goal in life is to make enough money that I can eventually pay someone to clean my house. Like I mean, that, that is amazing. my goal. I know. Yeah. If I have to, because somebody's coming over, then I'm like, tag on it. Okay. Like finally got to crack down. But yeah, then Anthony yeah. will be like, Are we at the point where we can just start hiding stuff now? And I'm like, Yeah, just start <laughs> just having stuff just in the closet. Yeah. Exactly. I'm in bed wherever. <laughs> Despite all the job's demands, though, Pam absolutely loved her job. She loved interacting with the patients, and they, in turn, actually loved her as well. What really amazed me, though, about Pam, and I mentioned this earlier, was her work ethic. She never settled. So, remember, she starts out as a housekeeper. Mm -hmm. She strived to better herself and better the life of her daughter. And over the next 10 years, Allison, Pam would work her way up the ladder and become a certified nurse's assistant. Wow. I know. And she did that as a single mom. Yeah. She's like, I'm not going to settle. I need to make the life that I want. Yeah. And I adore that ability and that want to improve. I just think that's agree. Speaks volumes of her character. Oh, yeah. It wasn't until 1999 that Pam finally felt that her life was where she had always wanted it to be. So she met a man and she was crazy about this man. And it seemed that he was also crazy about her. He was a construction worker named David. And remember that I said earlier that Pam was attracted to bad boys. Oh, no. Well, David was a bit of a bad boy. (sighs) I know. But like she kind of in the beginning, like I'm not going to justify how their relationship turns out. But in the beginning, I think she's very like um, Monique that we covered like a couple yep. episodes ago. She Who, like tries see, to see the best in people. Yeah. She wants to see the best in people. And I think like she was kind of almost like a veil over her eyes because David is like a sweet talker. Mm. Yeah, and according to the stalked documentary that I watched, David had been arrested before. It didn't say what for, but that was no turnoff to Pam. Many of Pam's friends and family seemed a little uneasy about David, considering that his nickname was Crazy Dave. Crazy Dave. Crazy Dave. He lives up to it. Oh, no. But Pam was always coming to his defense and swore that he was like an angel to her. Oh, so this is where it'd be yep. like, dun, dun, dun. it's like one of those things where like, you know, we see it, Maggie and I do as teachers and we'll have a student who's dating somebody 
you know, male or female, it doesn't matter. Both genders do it. Mm -hmm. And you'll overhear them talking to their friends and they're like, oh yeah, so-and-so did this one sweet thing and you're thinking in your head and you're ignoring the 20 other things I heard you complaining about last week to your friends, you know? Yeah, exactly. Evidence, I know. Being a construction worker meant that David was on the road a lot, but Pam was head over heels about him, and soon the two were living together. Quickly after moving in, though, their relationship began to suffer. And I've always heard, Allison, and I know that you'll know what I'm talking about, that you never really know a person until you live with them. I mean, Anthony and I Mm -hmm. dated for like five years, and I thought that I knew everything about him, like all the little, like, weird annoying things that he does but like I was wrong I learned so much about Anthony in those first few months and I know he would say the same like Anthony hates the way I chew right. food like it's like those little things you know or like if I cannot stand this is pet peeve the toilet paper has to come off the top of the roll it cannot come off the bottom of the roll <laughs> like it has to come over the top and if I see it coming off the I have to switch it like now now I want to go check my toilet paper rolls because I never uh you should you should already know this you should have to check (laughs) all right sleuth hounds you have to let us know are you over or under when it comes to toilet paper that's right are you a top (laughs) or bottom because it matters (laughs) um like there are just like I just feel like there's so much of who like we are intrinsically that's revealed to the people that we're living with and mm-hmm. I think the same happened for Pam and David like I think those like inner habits were revealed in those few months together gotcha so they learned that their personalities maybe not be like maybe weren't truly compatible mm-hmm. David starts being like and again, this is like all according to this stock documentary. David begins like being increasingly more controlling. And I'm mm. like, I'm sure it kind of maybe started out small. Like maybe she wasn't like, quote unquote, allowed to go to the grocery store alone. Or, you know, um, maybe she only should, could go to certain places like that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. like these demands soon evolved and like you're going to see just this progression of control because at first he urges her to quit her job and stay home. (gasps) This job that she worked so hard to get. Yeah. So the position she loved, like literally the people that she loved and loved her, she worked 10 years to get it and she doesn't, she does not quit. Oh, good. Kudos to him. And it does get like an isolation tactic. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, I actually, um, like, I'll talk about it actually just here in a little bit. But there are, like, a couple different, I guess, kind of, like, categories that people fall into when they keep returning to their abusers. Like, reasons why they go back, I guess, is what I'm trying Mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. And, like, that is kind of one of them. Like, it's like this sense of power. It's the there's not an equal amount of power or control it's unbalanced and he is controlling so much of her life and it just keeps getting worse Mm. like david starts following pam like everywhere she goes so then it's like she's not to be trusted yes which is another thing 
in that list. And according to the stalked documentary, David had eyes all over town. Like if Pam was out with a girlfriend and just like a man, maybe it was like a dude she knew in high school came over and was right. like, Oh my God, Pam, I haven't seen you, you know, in so long. How are you? Blah, blah, blah. Like she would immediately get a phone call from David, like bawling her out. <gasps> like if she would make one, like if she was supposed to make one stop on the way home, but she was like, Oh crap, I forgot to stop at the post office and made two. Like she would get a phone call from David about it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Can we just make a plea right now to sleuth hounds to not support any manipulative behavior like this? Yeah. Like if you know somebody like that and you know, the person's not doing anything wrong, don't say anything. Yeah. Don't be a continue. supportive friend. That's right. So with many verbally abusive relationships, Pam tried to leave David several times, but always would go back to him. Um, and like I said, I kind of got curious because we I feel like maybe hear, read, or see that a lot, like so many victims going back to their abusers. And so mm -hmm. like, I always thought that it was, you know, like out of fear. And I was surprised. Which I'm sure it could be for some. Yeah, and I was actually surprised that there was, like, quite an extensive, like, list, things that I wouldn't really have thought about um, in this article that I pulled up by psychologist Ellen Hendrickson, and it's mm -hmm. called Why Do Victims Go Back to Their Abusers? And she's a doctor, by the way. I don't want to discredit her hard work in her field. <laughs> Give her her title, Maggie. Yes. I know some people get very defensive about that. <laughs> The author states that fear is one reason why people return, but it's not the only one. So some common ones we see are financial dependency, right? Which I think he tried to get her financially dependent on him by make like encouraging her to quit her job, which she yep, didn't agree. Threats, which I feel like he is obviously threatening, threatening her. Mm -hmm. One was sexual intimacy. And we'll kind of get into that later on in the show. Okay. But she said that four of the main reasons were unequal power, manipulation, hope, and love. And I think as I continue to tell Pam's story, um, Sleuth Hounds and Allison, you guys will see how nearly each of these factors came into play for Pam. Okay. So despite all of his flaws, and I've kind of already said this, Pam did try to see the best in David. And I truly believe that Pam wanted him to be better and wanted him to be a good person. I think mm -hmm. in some way and at some point she did love him, but obviously the thinking changed as their relationship continued and he continued to get more and more controlling and abusive. But I think in the beginning there was at least lust, if not love in the beginning. Right. So maybe she saw kindness at the beginning. And I think, mm -hmm. for, and I don't know a lot about, you know, abusive relationships, but from what I've read, I get the sense that you think that when you first meet someone, that that is also the true essence of that person mm -hmm. and so if he seemed kind at first but then slowly became more and more manipulative and controlling then in her head she's probably thinking well but there's also the good side it's the cherry picking that we saw yeah before yeah and um in that article it does talk about like most abusers are 
like really smooth talkers and I think have just such a good way of making you believe they're one way when in reality, like the person you see later on, the abuser is who they are at their true self, not the person you may have fell in love with at the beginning. Right. And they're also very good at making you think that you're the one who's done something wrong. Yes, exactly. And we'll talk about that as well here in just a minute. But David does actually ask Pam to marry him at one point. um, And believing that she could do no better, she accepts his proposal, which I think is kind of what you were talking about, right? Like, she's suffered so much verbal abuse at this point, I think that Mm -hmm. she has been manipulated into believing that David is the only person that will want her. And so she accepts the proposal. Right. And here's when I really think we start to see all those factors I mentioned about abusive relationships coming into play, right? So there's a definite unequal share of power here. Pam believes that David is the best she could do. And that was his goal from the start to make her feel so worthless that she believed no one else could love her. And that is sad and disgusting that people are that manipulative. Yeah. David tries to control every single aspect of Pam's life. We've seen that already. Um, And actually, like, just kind of following her around town and having people kind of watch her isn't the only thing that he does. He actually would often call her boss at work and make up these, like, crazy, insane lies about Pam. Things like she was sexually involved with a patient, like trying to get her fired. So she's basically like, oh, she won't quit on her own. So I'm going to take it into my own hands and try to get her fired. Yes. And like, we know there's no way that's true. No, no. We know David manipulates her during the course of their relationship. And this was kind of what I was talking about with the sexual intimacy. David had Uh taken like sexual photos of Pam and as a way to manipulate her and I think to control her. He would often write her name on the back of them and pin them up in bars or restaurant bathrooms. And he even went as far as to send them to her mom. Yeah. (gasps) Okay. Okay. Listen, I mean, he crossed the line long ago, but that is like. (laughs) He crossed the line in the sand a long time ago. This was like on a whole new level. Yeah. And those last two reasons. I know, like, I can't, so. That's disgusting. So, I just feel like this is a lot. Also, life lesson, okay? If you take nudie pictures, I feel like to someone you're not in a good, healthy relationship, you're married to this person, okay? If you take nudie pictures, they are going to get out to other people. Like, I specifically remember in college, I knew this girl And she took, like, professional, like, nude pictures for this guy that she was dating. And, of course, he was like, oh, I won't show anybody, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, he did. And they were all over campus. And it was heartbreaking for her. I'm just saying, if you're in a relation, an intimate relationship with somebody, they can see you naked standing right in front of them. Yeah, so why do they They need the photos? They don't need a picture of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't have that much confidence, so that's a big no for me. <laughs> Maggie's like, I'll be in my robe, but whatever. Yeah, I'll be, I can barely put on a swimsuit now after like the COVID fifteen pounds I've gained. So, 
that's going to be a negative for me. <laughs> and the last two reasons, according to that Hendrickson article, um, were hope and love. And like I said, I do think um, that Pam kind of hoped that David would change. She hoped, you know, maybe this time when I go back, he's going to realize that he treated me poorly and that he's going to do better. Like, uh, that's almost intrinsic for humans. We want to believe that people can change. You know, we hope for the rainbow after the storm. And I think that was and what totally Pam was kind of hoping for. Yeah, and I can totally see that too, especially, and, and I know I don't know uh, Pam and David's, cra sorry, Crazy Dave's relationship, yes. but I can imagine that if he said enough to convince her to come back, then there was probably some apologizing and some saying and promising of not mm -hmm. doing it again. Yeah, empty promises. Mm-hmm. Hendrickson wrote, quote, in this culture, we're told to never quit, to hang in there, that anything can be accomplished if we set our mind to it, and that, and that's a tough dream to reject. Leaving the relationship means acknowledging that things will never change. It means giving up hope, end quote. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think she's true. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's a lesson we teach our students. Like, you can do it, never give up, which is good in like school circumstances, you know, or like when you're in your career and you're trying to get promoted, but not every circumstance in life, we need to believe like, I don't need to give up on this. Like if it's a crappy situation, wash your hands and move on. I know. And yeah, we always teach the whole like empathy and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to see things from the other person's perspective and giving extra chances and things like that. But I think you're right. And I think we also need to teach healthy boundaries mm -hmm. and, like when, especially in relationships, when it's fine to say, I need to be happy and I deserve to be happy too. And I wonder if like, this is an American thing. Like, I feel like we're so bad at setting boundaries, like, it, like even professional boundaries, right? Like I have worked so hard, like after 4.30 PM, I'm not answering parent emails like, I'm not answering parent emails on the weekend. And, like, that is really hard to set that boundary because I feel like a horrible person when I do that. And, like, I'm wondering, is that just an American thing that we have such a hard time setting, like, personal boundaries to make ourselves more mentally healthy? Or is it, that like, is an everywhere thing? That's a I'm, good question. Because you know I have not learned yeah, those boundaries yet. Like, I know you're the same way. Like, that, At all. Like, I'm in awe of the teachers that are like, I never take home anything to grade. I'm oh, like, I know. I'm really, like, Susie? I'm like grading over here at midnight on a Saturday night. And you're like not taking home anything. And I don't yeah, I don't. Not that, not that it's a teacher named Susie. That was just the no, first thought, right. name that came to mind. <laughs> uh, this was a hypothetical Susie. Yeah, this um, was a non-existent Susie. Right. Now, I do think that probably a lot of other cultures are better at setting boundaries for work from what I've read. Mm -hmm. But that is a great question about boundaries for mental health in, just in general. I'm curious. So especially international listeners, let us tell know. us about your experience. Yeah. Are yeah. you mentally drained as well? Wondering minds want to know. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, I do think Pam loved David in the beginning, and I think it was a combination of love, hope, manipulation, and that power that kept Pam going back time and time again. Mm -hmm. Soon, though, and this is again like a next step for David, 
um, Pam's friends and family start noticing physical abuse signs on her body. So bruising on her arms. And even per that stalked documentary, there were even bald patches on her head where it appeared someone had yanked out patches of her hair. Oh my goodness. Yes. And thankfully, Pam finally gathers enough courage to kick David out of her apartment in August of 2000. Oh my gosh. And I can't even imagine how much strength that took that act especially given all the manipulation and the fear and all of that stuff yeah like i cannot she's a stronger person than a lot of people Mm -hmm. it is the events that follow though that really and truly show us how david got the nickname crazy dave oh no So after Pam kicks David to the curb, he starts leaving her threatening voicemail messages. And I'm not talking like once a week. I'm talking multiple times a day. Did the police do anything or did she not turn him in? Um, well, both. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Uh, So in that stock documentary, Pam's daughter, who by 2000 was a mother herself, says that David even left voicemails on Pam's machine saying that he was going to bash in her granddaughter's head. He said, quote, bashing her head into a wall until her neck snapped, end quote. Talking about Pam's granddaughter. You should see my face right now. Yes. Yes, I'm sure it was the same one I made when I was watching this show. Oh. Here's my thing, too. If he's okay, he shouldn't be making comments like that about Pam herself. But, but a he, child... now he's making those. Yes, mm-hmm. and like that he's not... not just crazy. He needs like that. That term needs to be increased a ton. He uh-huh. needs to be like, I don't know, off the charts. I I don't even know what word. I can't even. There think isn't of a, word. a word. Yeah. <laughs> So that's not all, though. David actually starts showing up at Pam's work. Um, in one particularly violent fit, David actually chases Pam into the bathroom at her place of employment, and she is so scared, she locks herself in the restroom. Like, the reenactment I watched on Stalked, literally, like, this, they did a good job reenacting this, I think. But, like, it legit scared me. So I can't imagine seeing the thing in real life, let alone being Pam and experiencing it in real life. Okay, surely somebody in this scenario, since so many people are seeing it, called the police. Yeah, her coworkers actually do come to her rescue, and they telephone police. And it's actually after that scare that Pam goes to the Watertown Women's Rescue Center to get help getting a restraining order from a judge. And actually, I don't think that I've mentioned that Pam is from Watertown, South Dakota. So it's like, I think, a relatively small town from what I gathered Mm -hmm. in my research. So she's taking the next step. She's getting like a protection order against Crazy Dave. So he's supposed to stay like physically clear of her. Yeah, no talking to her, like coming to see her, no telephone calls. But clearly, like, do we think he gives a crap? No. No, he does not. He's got a nickname. Yeah, he earned that name for a reason. Um, And he actually, like did not obviously did not care and he calls her one i think the charlie project says 17 times the stock documentary said 26 times but he calls her 
several times in the two-week span after the order was served. So even if he called her 17 times, he's at least calling her once a day. And if he called her 26, like, we're talking multiple times a day. Yeah, that shows no respect for this restraining order. He doesn't care. No, and this is where I said that it was kind of both because I think Pam, you know, initially involves police, but then when these phone calls start happening, she does not report those to police. I wonder why. Like, was she too scared? I wonder. Like, I like I tried to put myself in Pam's shoes, and I kind of think if it were me, like I'm relying on that court order to protect me, and I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking, okay, even if he's calling me, he's not going to come to my house. Like, I have this protection order. He's not going to do anything more than call me. So I'm just going to ignore that. Like, I think that would kind of be my justification. Mm-hmm. But then you also know me, like, I'm a rule follower. So if oh, he called me the first yeah. time, I'd be like, um, he broke this protection order. He's not following <laughs> rules. Go arrest him. Yeah. Get him. Sick him. Get him. Yes. Finally, things, though, begin to look up for Pam um, once again. And so by the fall of 2000, she'd actually met a new man. And this time, like, people can tell she is truly happy and he is just really good for her. So not a bad boy, finally. Yes, finally a good boy. But do you remember, like, when Pam was, like, going to other, like, you know, two stops instead of one. Yeah. Like what I said about David. That literally everybody in town is watching and then telling him about it. Yeah. So he has eyes all over town. So uh, it is not surprising that before long, the new couple spotted out and David is informed. And he goes, I can only imagine his reaction. Yeah. He goes berserk. So his stalking increases, his phone calls to her apartment increase, and he begins leaving more violent voicemails. Um, In fact, according to that documentary, David leaves Pam one voicemail, and this was like, oh my god, like that type of voicemail. Where he tells her that he wants to cut up her body into a million pieces and put it in a well so no one will ever find her. Like, how specific is that? Uh, yeah, and scary. Yeah. And I actually didn't, I don't recall from that documentary if it said she went to police over that one. But obviously. Oh, I definitely went over that one. Yeah. But obviously he hasn't changed at all. That protection no. order meant nothing to him. And it's now December 2001. And he still hasn't changed. According to, it was called like caselaw.com. And it was like case notes that I found Mm -hmm. Um, on December 9th, around 8 p.m., Pam's daughter, Stacy, called her. And while Stacy was on the phone with her mom, she actually hears David in the background. Like Pam and David are having a conversation. And I'm sure Stacy was like, "Um, Mom. Why is he over there? Yeah, what, what are you doing? And Pam quickly is like, oh, he's just grabbing the rest of his stuff. And then he's leaving. No. Pam. <gasps> I know. Yeah, that should have been like a police escorted yeah. thing. And Drop then, it off with the third party. Yeah. Or at least like the police be there when he goes to her house. But oh, then man. she calls, Pam calls her own mom 
Loretta around 11 o'clock that night and said that David had called her and was upset and sounded like he was crying. So this is potentially part of the manipulation again. Oh, yeah, 100%. He's not really crying. Like, 100%, he's manipulating her. The next day, on December 10th, 2001, Pam was supposed to report to work that morning at the Jenkins Living Center. So that same, like, nursing home, assisted living Uh that she'd been at for a while now, and she never shows up. (gasps) Welfare check. I'm telling you, this girl's showing up to work. If she refused to quit for an abusive boyfriend, there's no way she just wouldn't show up. Yeah, and that's exactly what her coworkers were thinking. They call police to let Pam know, or to let the police know that Pam is not at work because, like you said, like this isn't normal behavior for her, um, right. and they're immediately worried because if she's not going to quit because her boyfriend is telling her to, then she's just not not going to come to work, you know. So and police- this is the day after, yes, her daughter hears Crazy Dave at the apartment. Yeah. That was Crazy Mm. Dave was at the apartment on the 9th. She doesn't show up for work on the 10th. Mm. So the police contact Stacy and they tell her that, you know, have you seen, have you seen your mom? And when Stacy hasn't, they go to Pam's apartment to search for clues. And what they find is odd to me. Mm -hmm. So one, like we're close to Christmas time. And Pam, from all of these things I read, loved Christmas, which me too, Pam, like my house looks like the North Pole puked in it when it's Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) But like all of her Christmas lights were still on and it's daytime. So I feel like she would have unplugged those on her way Mm -hmm. to work. Mm -hmm. The TV's still on. So remember, this is South Dakota. So like winters in Kentucky are cold, but there are still some days when I'm like, I'm just walking to my car and then into work. So I don't really need like a big coat. But I feel like in South Dakota, that's probably not a conversation you mentally have with yourself in the wintertime. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like once it's winter, (laughs) there's a no brainer. Winter. Yeah. 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 And her like coat that she normally wore was still in the closet, which Mm. wouldn't have made sense for the climate that she's in. Nope. It said in the stock documentary that her dog was actually under her bed and was like scared and shaking. Okay. So obviously something traumatic happened. Yes. Or there's fireworks, but there's not going to be fireworks around Christmas time. Yeah. Unless you live in a weird neighborhood, there could be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, (laughs) But yeah, the dog is under the bed and he's scared. And stranger still is the caller ID box. So um, young people, this is a box that we would have back in the day (laughs) that would tell us the number and name of people that called while you were away. Right. Because we didn't have cell phones (laughs) or we did, but they weren't the phones that we had now. And all of my kids, they were asking me what my first cell phone was. And I was like, "Um, it was a Motorola Razor. Hello. And they were like, oh, oh my God, this Cameron, you had a, they were like cracking up. And I was like, I was cool with that phone. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much that I was hip. But anyways, (laughs) I digress. So what about the caller ID box? So it's gone. It's not there. So obviously somebody took it. Right. And why would you take it unless you're trying to hide the fact that you called it? And her engagement ring 
which I'm assuming she had not given back to David, was also missing. Her keys to her car are still on the kitchen counter. I'm pretty sure that I read her car was still parked near her home, but there is no Pam. Okay, so we can assume she left with someone. Yeah, somebody's not going to break into your house and steal. Okay, I get an engagement ring, it's worth money. But your caller ID box... Yeah, like, hmm, I can take all this other valuable stuff. I'm taking the caller ID box and the engagement ring. Thing. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. So naturally, police focus on David. I mean, after all, he is the last person that we know of to have seen Pam alive. And what is mm-hmm. crazy to me is that in my reading and in the show that I watched, police did not even have to, like, go to David's house to say, like, hey, have you seen Pam? He literally just like pops up at the police station and is like, hey, I heard Pam was missing and I basically want to like make sure my name does not come up and like cover my behind as to why uh, I was the last person that talked to her. That alone would make me think that you're acting suspicious. Yeah, it's kind of like on the lamb to the slaughter when she just sits in the living room while they're like looking at her dead husband. I think it's because she wanted to know if her name was going to come up in their case investigation and i think this was the same kind of thing but he bizarre behavior yeah and he openly admits to speaking with pam the night before which obviously is a clear violation of this like protection order Mm -hmm. um he's really reluctant to say much of anything else and you know we have no proof that he is linked to pam's disappearance and so david isn't initially arrested Okay, you said initially. Yes, because we finally get a little bit of a break in the case when Pam's telephone company releases to police voicemails that were left on Pam's machine, which I didn't know they could do. Did you know that was a thing? I didn't know that either. No. I mean, I knew you could on a cell phone, but I didn't know you could on like, you know, the old. The old Tommy. Maybe it was. Maybe it was on her cell phone and I'd you know, misread in the research because, you know, sometimes that happens and you'll see sleuth hounds, Allison and I have started making like a conscious effort to reach out to people associated with the cases that we're covering because even though we only use like reliable sources, some of the cases that we cover are so old that Mm -hmm. news has kind of, it's kind of like when you play the game telephone, right? Like it starts Mm -hmm. out and then it ends up as another Mm -hmm. We use reliable sources. Sometimes that information changes over time. So we always have, well, we have started always trying to contact family and friends to make sure that we have the facts correct. And if we don't, right. we're at least using sources that are credible sources. Right. Karen'sblog.com. Right. <laughs> so um, in these voicemail voicemails that were left there are three in a span of nine hours they get progressively more violent and i actually couldn't find um like a copy of these to do you guys an audio um some of it was played in the stopped documentary but i didn't know if maybe that was like they assumed yeah, or maybe they assumed this is kind of what he said or it was copyrighted i didn't say any of that in the case because i couldn't find that anywhere else I'm wondering if one of them was as violent as the well comment. Breaking your granddaughter's neck. Yeah, or that one. Because those are pretty violent. Yes. 
But because of those three, like, voicemails, David is arrested and charged with stalking, okay? Like, I feel like if you look okay. up stalking in the dictionary, his picture is right. beside of it. Right, there it is. Yeah. During the court proceedings, David actually, like, fires his court-appointed lawyer, saying that he could represent himself better than what the lawyer could. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then, like, everything I read, it just kind of talked about how he, like, rambled on about some, like, minute law that had absolutely nothing to do with the case or to help him in any way. And clearly, he was not able to better represent himself than his attorneys because on December 1st, 2004, he is sentenced to 40 months in jail for breaking that protection order. Which is not that long. It is not that long, but this is not the end. Okay. Again, according to caselaw.com, telephone records revealed that David had initiated 17. So remember the other source said like 26. Oh, yeah, yeah. So either way, a lot of phone calls. Yes. To Pam's house telephone between November 25th, 2001 and December 9th, 2001, all in violation of that protection order. Right. The note said, quote, three threatening and abusive messages left by a male who did not identify himself were received from Dunn's digital voice messaging system, which indicated that the messages had been listened to and saved prior to Dunn's disappearance, end quote. So I wonder who listened to them. Was it Pam Mm. or was he listening listening back to them? Mm. Because, I mean, we can all assume David took the caller ID box. Uh, Yeah. I mean, who else would take it? Right. And do you remember, besides the caller ID box, what else was missing from Pam's apartment? The engagement ring. Yeah. And do you want to know what David's sister would eventually hand over to police saying that he gave it to her? The engagement ring? Yes. Pam's engagement ring. Well, there's your proof right there. Yeah. And it is that piece of evidence. And this, I was like, wow that it's nine days and i think i'm getting the wording correct if not it doesn't change the case but nine days before david qualified for parole with that 40 month sentence oh, well that's good timing then yeah that he's brought back to court this time though it's not on charges of stalking but on charges of kidnapping and kidnapping pam obviously Because she's missing. Because that's really the only thing that we can prove. Right. We can't prove that anything else happened to her besides the fact that she's missing. Again, since it worked out so well the first time, um, he chooses to represent himself. Oh, my goodness. He's just digging a hole for himself. Which, I I mean, go right ahead, crazy dude. Go right ahead. The judge has him psychologically evaluated, which I feel like you should. Mm Mm-hmm. David argues his case, but no one buys it. And on January 10th, 2007, David is sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole for kidnapping Pamela Dunn. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I did, like I said, um, this case was listener suggested by Amanda and her and I have been kind of messaging back and forth. She is like a friend of Pam's family and friends. And I asked her a few questions because... I've just had a couple that 
were like lingering questions after all my research. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know, since David's arrest, has he spoken to anybody about what could have happened to Pam? And mm-hmm. she told me that he won't say a word about the about Pam, about the case, or about what happened. Hmm. And like you said, since we have no body, we don't really right. have evidence of foul play besides we know she was kidnapped and we have no crime scene we can't charge david with anything beyond the kidnapping because it's all circumstantial so basically until you find a crime scene a murder weapon or you get a confession we're stuck yeah and as you can tell from Pam's story many people believe that David was somehow involved but that's just not enough to to hold up in court you know I mean I guess we could maybe say that she ran away Mm -hmm. right because some may say that because she was trying to run from David and he was abusive and had come back into her life briefly and maybe that's why she ran that you know he threatened her and she was just trying to get away but Mm -hmm. like I feel like all of her other behavior doesn't really point to that. I feel like that would be really uncharacteristic for her. Yeah. And she's not going to call like her daughter. And I mean, she literally worked her way up for her daughter. Yeah. And why would she leave without a coat? And where'd she go? Cause she didn't take her car. Yeah. Don't, was... don't trust that theory. No, there was a potential break in Pam's case, um, to which I kind of hinted at in my intro. Um, police actually are pointed to a well on an abandoned farm. Oh, no. A yes. well. A well. And Amanda actually told me that David had connections to the people that owned this farm. And it had been abandoned, I think I read, since like the 80s. The owner now, at the time that article was written, lived in Colorado. So... No one was living on this farm, and no one had been for a while. And what's creepy is, if you remember in the voicemail left by David, he said that he was going to chop her up into a million pieces and put her in a well well so no one could find her. And this well fits that description. (laughs) Yes, and from what I read, it had kind of been searched multiple times, but never to the extent that it was on November 4th, 2020. So this is pretty recent. Mm Mm-hmm. Agencies from the South Dakota Division of Criminal Investigation, the Watertown Police Department, and the Sheriff's Office excavated a very large portion of this well. So, like I said, it had been abandoned since the 80s. So, the excavation included an excavator and a payloader to kind of dig out this well. Mm -hmm. The well was about three feet wide and about 21 feet down, and it had kind of been partially filled in. So they dug oh. the well out, all 29 feet of it, and they found remains at about depth 25 feet, and again around 29 feet, many of which they said were animal remains, but there were oh. human remains <gasps> found in the well. Do we know? Well, immediately I was like, were the remains found in the well? Pamela Dunn's. And like, I got super excited because I'm like, oh, yes, this is it. Because, you know, like 
November right. 2020 is fairly recent. So maybe just like word hasn't really spread in this COVID world that we're living in and her remains have been found. But hopes were high that it was Pam. Um, even one of the sheriff's officers says, quote, we want to find Pamela to give her family closure. But sadly, I read in an article and then in my conversations with Amanda that the well did not contain the DNA of Pamela Dunn. Oh, man. I was just hoping for closure. Me too. And I kind of think, like, everyone is. Mm. Even though the well that was searched did not turn up to hold the remains of Pam, we still go on wishing that she'll turn up. When I asked Amanda if she had anything she wanted to add to the case, she expressed nothing but the desire to find answers for Pam's family. She said, quote, The most important thing I think to mention is that both Pam's parents have now passed without ever getting closure. Her siblings are getting older, and her children and grandchildren have many more years ahead with this tragedy. If we can't find her now or soon, eventually her case will be forgotten. End quote. Sleuth hounds, we know that David stalked Pam. He knew everywhere she went and who she was with. He had eyes all over town. Even if David wasn't responsible for what happened to Pam, surely he or someone that would report back to him knows something. We can't let Pam be forgotten. We have to keep pushing for answers in her case. Her family and friends deserve closure after all of these years. Let's work together to solve the case of Pamela Dunn. Again, please like and join us on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you next week. week.